This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. The world's fastest rising power openly practicing war on Taiwan. The world's, quote, third superpower openly supporting it. Spies subverting the government in the state of Israel. And why is Bud Light doing what it's doing? Coming up on Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to the end of the week edition of Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. I'm here with our four trumpet writers who are at the ready. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Mr. Jacques, you watch Asia, China, Russia, Japan, and a number of other countries that are becoming more and more relevant and dominating more and more headlines. What have been some of the main headlines that our listeners need to note for this week? Yeah, well, there was this uh, big leak of U.S. intelligence. One of the big findings from that was that China was planning, at least at one point, to secretly provide Russia with weapons to help its war against Ukraine. So there had been rumors about that before, but now this is confirmed by these leaks. Another big story this week was that China threatened the Philippines, saying that it needs to end its military ties with the U.S. or else. And then Japan this week took another big step toward military normalization with a plan to field submarine-launched missiles that are uh, capable of striking enemy ships. Meanwhile, the best intelligence now says that Russia's war on Ukraine could easily last another year or even longer. So if those are some of the headlines, but not the main headline, that must mean that the main headline's a pretty big deal. What's, what's the main thing you want to give us? Yes. Yeah, those are all notable uh, developments. But I think that the biggest story of the week was a new round of Chinese war games around Taiwan. This was from April 8th to the 10th that the Chinese military called the People's Liberation Army staged these just massive war games. And they essentially encircled the island of Taiwan with warships and aircraft simulating an attack that would seal Taiwan off from the rest of the world so that China could, you know, invade and occupy this island. There were more than 90 warplanes involved here. Those included dozens of fighter jets and also H-6 bombers with live missiles. There were also numerous warships working in conjunction with those planes, um, you know, performing tactical maneuvers around Taiwan. China's aircraft carrier, the Shandong, also took part in these, these drills. And Taiwan reported that many of these... Chinese fighter jets cross the median line into Taiwan's airspace. So it's just a, a major provocation and a very sobering display of China's, what I think you could call it's just unyielding determination to seize this island of 23 million freedom-loving people. This obviously sends a clear message. Who is it? Uh, who is the message meant for? Well, yeah, that's a great question. This uh, it does send a clear message mainly to Taiwan. You know, the, these drills took place near Taiwan, of course, but they were actually too far away to be seen by people on the mainland. So, in order to make it absolutely clear that this was a rehearsal for war, the Chinese also released quite a lot of video footage of these maneuvers. And the Chinese released an animation 
of the specific Taiwanese cities, cities that you could say are on China's hit list, that, uh, that they would strike with missiles in the event of war. So at the same time as they're carrying out these drills, they're releasing video footage, they're releasing this animation showing the Taiwanese cities that would be struck. Um, so it, it was just a major show of force intended to really demonstrate to the Taiwanese that they should surrender, that they should not even try to stand up. And, and it was a highly publicized threat to Taiwan and I think you could say to anyone who dares to try to help defend the Taiwanese. Imagine seeing your own city, your own, uh, you know, the, the main skyscrapers or, or what have you of your downtown on an enemy uh, war games uh, video pre- pre- presentation. Uh, that's pretty chilling. Why? Why now? Yes. Yeah. These uh, these war games, they all happened. The timing is no coincidence. It happened just after Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen traveled to Los Angeles, where she met with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So China, you know, we know that they view democratically ruled Taiwan as a rebel province, just kind of a rogue state. They claim ownership of it, and they've often vowed to use military force to bring the island under the control of the Chinese Communist Party. And with a visit like the one that the Taiwanese president just made, you know, going to talk to U.S. political leaders, the Chinese see that as just a real challenge to their claims of ownership over the island. And Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen, she really spoke boldly about the the U.S.-Taiwan partnership. In the discussion with congressional leaders this morning, I reiterated Taiwan's commitment to defending the peaceful status quo, where the people of Taiwan may continue to thrive in a free and open society. I also highlighted a belief which President Reagan champions that to preserve peace, we must be strong. I would like to add that we are stronger when we are together. So that was Tsai Ing-wen, the Taiwanese president, during her recent visit with American uh, political leaders in Los Angeles, most notably U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And this sort of thing is just anathema to China. The Chinese know that America says, at least from time to time, that it will stand up to help Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. And so a visit like that, um, which seems to strengthen the U.S.-Taiwan partnership, that just infuriates the Chinese. So that that visit is what prompted China's elaborate and really provocative war games. Taiwan has never been under the control of the Chinese Communist Party on the mainland of of China. The United States has guaranteed its its uh, continued independence, its continued uh, right to have a democratic government of its own. This seems to be a, a step, uh, a, a strong movement on the United States. This is part to to ignore Chinese protests and to go ahead and have that visit take place. So which way is this going to go? Is this going to go toward increased American strength and Taiwanese strength or the other way? Well, yeah, I mean, to everyone's relief, this particular round of Chinese military movers maneuvers uh, was just a rehearsal. It was just a dry run. But Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that eventually we should expect China to swallow Taiwan up. Uh, he's made that forecast 
based on his understanding of Bible prophecy, and specifically a prophecy in the book of Leviticus about America having its pride and its power broken. That's in chapter 26. And Mr. Fleury has actually been applying this passage to the China-U.S.-Taiwan dynamic since all the way back in 1998. That was when U.S. President Bill Clinton made a statement just kind of publicly opposing Taiwanese independence. And just after that, Mr. Fleury wrote, The Chinese leaders pressured the president and America to speak against our freedom-loving friends before the whole world, and the people of Taiwan feel betrayed. And then skipping down a little, Mr. Fleury writes, How could anyone fail to see that Taiwan is destined to become a part of mainland China? It is going to happen for one reason, because of a pitifully weak-willed America. Does freedom really mean so little to us? End quote. So I think, you know, I think it's commendable to see American leaders hosting the Taiwanese president and even visiting Taiwan, as has happened a few times in recent years. But really, all of that is too little too late, and it won't be enough to fix America's broken power or to deter China's eventual takeover. So amid all the content on thetrumpet.com, more and more content every day, uh, where can our listeners go for more information? Well, I would recommend that uh, first article by Mr. Fleury. Uh, It was written all the way back in 1998, but the analysis remains as relevant or more so now than ever. That one's called Taiwan Betrayal. We can leave a link to that. And then we can also leave a link in our show notes to the article about this most current set of war games. That one is called China Simulates Attack on Taiwan. Certainly moving closer to conflict, even seeing images of what that conflict, very close of what that conflict would look like. Richard Palmer has been watching Europe. What is new in Europe, Mr. Palmer? So Latvia is in the process of reintroducing conscription. Apologies to our Latvian listeners if we have any. I hardly think that's going to leave too many countries shaking in their boots. But (laughs) it's another sign of how European countries are changing their militaries for fear of Russia, a trend that we end up talking about a lot on this show. There's uh, also the German defense minister. He is visiting Niger. There's a few German ministers visiting various countries in North Africa. It's an important trend as we see Europe moving more and more into this area and into areas that are kind of considered part of the traditional Muslim world as they deal with some of their different uh, migration crises and things like that. And then uh, President Joe Biden uh, visited Northern Ireland this week and the Republic of Ireland and uh, this is all part of him trying to pressure Northern Ireland into agreeing to this Northern Ireland protocol, this agreement that kind of leaves Northern Ireland as a hostage member of the European Union while Britain leaves. Uh, There's all kinds of complicated debates about whether this is a good compromise or not, but it's very clear that Joe Biden is on the EU side on this and is working pretty hard to, to give the EU leverage over the UK. But the big news out of Europe this week is the same as the big news from last week. That's right. Last week, we focused on French President Emmanuel Macron arriving in France. And then on April 9th, uh, arriving in France, arriving in China, uh, on April 9th, he gave his uh, kind of bombshell interview in the plane on the way home from his trip to China. I guess he's taking a cue from Pope Francis there. Uh, where he sat down with Politico, um, I think it was France 20, you know, a few other European newspapers, 
and threw to through Taiwan under the bus. I think that was the big takeaway for most people from this from this interview. So he really doubled down on the same kind of rhetoric that we talked about last time, this idea that Europe needs to be independent from America, that Europe is not a an American vassal, that uh, Europe is a, uh, a, a has strategic autonomy. He talks about how the EU should become a, quote, third superpower. And then he started getting into specifics. And this is where he brought up Taiwan and basically took on the Chinese version of the narrative of what's going on over here. Uh, over there so he didn't he blamed america for rises in tension around taiwan not china for wanting to invade and for staging military exercises you know the kind of thing that jeremiah was just talking about but instead it was america that was rising tensions because of their response to this that was that was his take on it and he said that europe must not quote become followers on this topic and take our cue from the u.s agenda and Again, this looked to many people like he was throwing Taiwan under the bus and he was pretty much saying, okay, if China invades uh, Taiwan, yes, America might defend Taiwan in some fashion, whether it's a full-on military defense, whether it's something similar to Ukraine where there are sanctions on China and American military support for Taiwan. Uh, But Europe, we might not get involved. We may well sit this one out. We'll have a very different foreign policy to this. This stands out. This stood out to a lot of people as dangerous. As uh, you know, if you want to keep China from invading Taiwan, uh, you want to at least have the option on the table, or at least at least leave some uncertainty about what they could face a massive response from a lot of people. And so, for France to kind of say, "Well, actually, Europe's going to sit this one out." Uh, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And so he's been dogged by questions for on this all week. He was visiting the Netherlands. Uh, I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday. He doubled down on his comments during his Netherlands visit. Annalena Baerbock, the German foreign minister, uh, she was visiting China. She left, I think, Wednesday night, arrived Thursday morning. She's there for three days. This has completely overshadowed her visit as well. And she's kind of tried. She, she's generally known to be a bit more hawkish on China. Uh but she has tried to step this careful line of not kind of making as many waves as Macron, but by not dis- not disagreeing with him either. And I think for Germany's most anti-Chinese politician to be very careful about disagreeing with Macron on this issue, that says a lot about Germany's stance too, and that ultimately you know, Germany's on the same page here. Uh, so this has been it's been a remarkable interview, and it's you know it's had shock waves continue to kind of reverberate all throughout the week and again this is an interview given right as at the same time as the chinese communist party has warships and warplanes some of which mr jack said invaded taiwan or violated taiwanese airspace he he is supporting them as they are doing the most belligerent thing they could do simulating an actual military attack on democratic taiwan it's America's fault. Yeah, that was the kind of narrative that this big attack. The, the, yeah, that America's forced them into this. I guess. Um, if I may interject uh, for this as well, I think it's an interesting dichotomy when you put together France and what they're doing with China and all the hoo ha that came out of that, and Germany's relationship with Russia in regarding Ukraine. The exact same type of criticism that people are throwing at um, Macron uh, with 
his Taiwanese interview. That's what people have been saying about Germany and Ukraine since the start of the war last year. Why is uh, Germany not supporting Ukraine more with weapons? Why are they still importing fossil fuels from Russia? What, what's going on here? There's this evil autocratic dictatorship from the East causing war against the West, and you're taking the side of the invader. And a lot of France criticized Germany for what they were doing. And it w we often talk about in this program how Germany is the leader of the European Union. In that case, it looked a little bit isolated. But here, when it's not as close to home, when there's not an actual war going on on Europe's borders, but similar circumstances, big Eastern autocracy attacking a relatively defenseless Western democracy, you see that countries like France actually are on board with that kind of thinking. And, show, and so it goes to show that Germany is not alone in this kind of thinking. It truly leads the EU and the rest of Europe, uh, whether they'll admit it publicly or not, deep down thinks the same way. That's right, Mihailo Zekic. We, and we've been thinking about West versus East, right? I thought it was the Democratic West versus the, the uh, not-so-Democratic East. That, that paradigm, that way of looking at the world seems to be blowing up Richard Palmer. Yes, yeah, and I think that's a great point, just that this kind of same language from Germany preceded Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, now we're seeing Europe give the green light to a potential Chinese invasion of, of Taiwan, at least from their point of view. But this is what really, you know, if you've been following us for a long time, these kind of statements about Europe being a third superpower, I think they will have really popped out at you. Uh, they, cert they certainly did with me. This is exactly the same language that Herbert W. Armstrong was using for decades, talking about Europe. No, they're not kind of a part of this East-West system. They have their ambitions, their goals set on being a third power that's separate from that. So he talks about Europe becoming a new united superpower, perhaps more powerful than either the Soviet Union or the United States. That was in 1983. In 1956, he said Europe will become a third power in the world. So this is... You know, ab absolutely uh, shocking in terms of it's a direct fulfillment of, of what he was saying. And then I think it's even more specific fulfillment of something that uh, Mr. Flurry's talked about quite a bit, uh, this mart of nations prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter three, uh, chapter 23, that we, we talked a little bit on last show. This description in Isaiah 23, it describes a mart of nations in biblically prophetic terms, it describes a group of countries, some are from Europe, some are from Asia. Uh, it's including Japan and China. And other passages tell us that this global trade alliance is going to shut America out of world trade. And I think Macron's comments are going, as people kind of look back on the creation of what the Bible terms the Mart of Nations, I could see Macron's comments being a real stepping stone, maybe even a pivotal moment in the formation of that where he's going to china saying well we're a third power we don't side with america and we're working to form our, our own alliance with china part of the west a becoming a third superpower and b joining the superpower of the east that is no small news Thank you, Mr. Palmer, for watching the Europe region for us. Please continue to do so. Mihailo Zekic, you've been watching much of the world, but specifically the Middle East. Yes, yeah, so this has actually been a pretty busy week for the Middle East. On Sunday, Saudi delegations flew into Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, to start negotiations with 
the Iran-backed Houthi rebels there. They concluded first round of talks just today. They've agreed to a prisoner swap. More talks are scheduled in the future. We'll hold off uh, on some more in-depth coverage until uh, the talks actually conclude and we see the final results of them. Also, on Saturday, there was, well, actually for a while now, there have the, been these leaked uh, files from the Pentagon detailing some Amer American uh, intelligence collected from various actors that has been floating around on the Internet. Mainstream media only started reporting it last Saturday which prompted the Pentagon to scramble and try and clean up the mess. One of the big uh, stories that was found in there was that Egypt was secretly trying or thinking about uh, supplying Russia with weapons, as we heard uh, uh, from uh, Jeremiah about China. Egypt, of course, is supposed to be an American ally as opposed to China, and so that raised a lot of people's eyebrows. But uh, this is a good segue into my main story because it also ties in with this a set of leaked documents from the Pentagon. Among them also included an allegation that Mossad, uh, the Israeli external intelligence service, has been secretly supporting the judicial reform protests that have been going on in Israel since January. Now, for those that maybe haven't heard uh, some of our programs before, there's been protests going on against Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, proposed judicial reform programs affecting how the Supreme Court uh, gets its nominees and other factors. Uh, they peaked at around 600,000 people nationwide. They've died down significantly since then. But as I mentioned before, I tried to avoid covering this story week after week because it was more of the same. And all of a sudden, each week, things just seem to keep getting more and more interesting with this. Um, this is uh, a seg... Uh, a segment from those uh, Pentagon files as quoted by the Washington Post. Uh, according to them, the Mossad spy service advocated for Mossad officials and Israeli citizens to protect the new Israeli government's proposed, or protests, sorry, the new Israeli government's proposed judicial reforms, including several explicit calls to action that decried the Israeli government according to Signals Intelligence. Now, whatever your opinion of the judicial reforms are, hey, Mossad is a branch of the government that people are protesting against. Not only as a branch, it is directly under the thumb of the prime minister. It answers to him directly. B, it's <laughs> even if somehow you could justify a police force, if you could call it that, protesting the, the government whose laws it's supposed to enforce uh, taking place, it's also an external um, intelligence agency. It's supposed to have no jurisdiction whatsoever within Israel's borders. So the fact, and they're also to boot, I mean, one of the most skilled, sophisticated, and some would say infamous intelligence agencies around the world. So, I mean, government bureaucrats with placards on the streets of Tel Aviv is one thing, but this is just what we know about. It, and it just demonstrates the intent that they have to protest the government and the what they think about their boss, Prime Minister Netanyahu, as well. What do, are they doing that we don't know about? These protests, um, there's a lot of people on the streets that are concerned about what's going on. A lot of them simply don't like Netanyahu one way or the other, and they want him gone. They've been uh, trying to do that for years now. And the Supreme Court in Israel, as we've covered on this program before, it's notoriously corrupt and unaccountable and has been for years. Mossad knows all this. Why is it choosing now 
to break its impartiality and uh, protest against the prime minister that we know of among potential other incidents. So it, of all the enemies that Benjamin Netanyahu makes or could make, Mossad is probably among the most dangerous and among the most being able to do damage. And it shows just how little support Netanyahu has even among his own agencies, even among his own government. And for an agency like this of Israel to revolt against the prime minister is pretty unprecedented. Spies interfering with constitutional government. Now, that does ring a little bit of a bell. Where yeah. have we heard that before? <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, the spies in in Israel who are supposed to work exclusively outside of Israel for the protection of Israel and its constitutional government interfering in that constitutional government to uh, oppose a certain political, not only candidate, but uh, sitting prime minister is is huge news indeed. This is a, a major development in this story that we've been watching. Where do you see this going and where do our listeners, uh, where can our listeners go for more on this? Yeah, I was just about to interject there in the middle. A trend we've been following a lot is America's political crisis and the so-called deep states attack against U.S. President Donald Trump. This includes intelligence agencies like the FBI, like uh, the Department of Defense and all the mechanisms there. We're seeing... As far as we can see, it's not on the same scale as America, but we're seeing a similar attack from the Israeli deep state, and Mossad has been called that by people, uh, by analysts, uh, against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. We've compared Netanyahu and uh, Donald Trump quite a bit as well. Both are uh, populists uh, having an agenda to make their countries great again, and both have basically the entire countries going after them. Uh, So we could potentially see... Uh, this play out in a number of ways, but our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, has pointed to once the dust settles and these battles between these figures and the deep state ends, that we could see a resurgence in these countries. It specifically ty- He specifically mentioned Donald Trump leading this resurgence, but it'll impact Israel as well. Hosea 5, verse 5 is a prophecy where it talks about uh, Israel, in this case, speaking of the United States, and Judah, which is the state of Israel, or the Jewish state's biblical name, have falling at the same time, having uh, similar problems, but Mr. Fleury said that we can expect them to have a resurgence or other prophecies. Now, if our listeners would want to learn more, he wrote an article last year called Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. That will go through the relevant prophecies and where this could all lead. And I would also like to recommend this past Wednesday's Trumpet Daily program by our Jerusalem correspondent Brent Noctegal. He has uh, covered these these this particular revelation about Mossad quite a bit. And uh, if you want more information about this particular story, you can get more in-depth uh, information from there. Well, thank you, Mr. Zekic. You mentioned the leak from the Pentagon, the headquarters, of course, of the United States military. Andrew Miller, you watch what we call the Anglo-America region. You and I have discussed one major development after another every single day this week, it seems like. Uh, But if you have to narrow it down, which you do, what are the ones that uh, our listeners need to keep in mind? Well, it's definitely been a hectic week. There's been a a Louisville Bank employee uh, killed five people after losing his job. Uh, President Donald Trump headed back to New York City for a second politically motivated deposition. Uh, 
The House Judiciary Committee uh, subpoenaed the FBI for placing informants in local Catholic churches. And 18,000 cows died in a devastating uh, industrial explosion in Texas. Yet another food production disaster. What's the main story you want to present to our listeners? Uh, This week, I actually want to talk about a moral issue in America, and really a shocking one. Um, You've probably noticed that there's definitely been an uptick in big companies using um, transgender advertisers or trying to promote transgenderism more positively in their campaigns. Uh, and we are getting a, a little bit more of a deep dive with a, one of the latest cases that this isn't just a grassroots movement in America, but almost like a mafia style, uh, centrally organized campaign uh, to force big companies to promote transgenderism, even to their financial loss. Um, the uh, the big the big case I think everyone's talking about um, this week is a, a particularly famous transgender influencer uh, Dylan Mulvaney is the name they use in all his uh, all his contracts. He's a 26 year old man who, who who dresses and pretends to be uh, a woman. If you've seen any clips with him, they're <laughs> actually quite disturbing. Uh, but he signed a big contract with um, Anheuser Busch the uh the beer company to promote bud light and uh i actually did see that ad and it just struck you so weird because especially even morality aside for a minute um like bud light traditionally they've marketed more toward like working class country folk uh hunters trappers fishers builders construction workers type men uh and then to have a 26 year old in a dress trying to explain to you why you should drink Bud Light is just I was like what what marketing what marketing executive approved this uh, and apparently a number of other people have had the same thought because Bud Light has lost almost six billion dollars in the last two weeks as uh, this this advertising campaign has gone over like a ton of bricks uh and prompted a number of people to actually start looking into this that's like well like seriously what advertising executive uh approved this and that's when you start getting kind of like these inner workings of a system uh that shows that the uh uh the the big uh the big investment firms in america blackrock uh vanguard state street capital uh, just those three, actually, I just mentioned, uh, are the majority shareholders of 40% of the companies, publicly traded companies in America. Uh, BlackRock, and that's and that's all publicly traded. Companies. All publicly traded companies. They don't they don't necessarily own 40% of the publicly traded companies, but they are the major shareholder in 40% of the publicly traded companies. Just BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. That is incredible. Yeah, an incredible statistic. And so uh, so you've got basically three CEOs of three companies who have tremendous power over how companies are run in America. And they're, um, they're using uh, something called uh, ESG management uh, being promoted by the World Economic Forum. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. If you're wondering what that means, you're not alone. Generally, it means that a company's first concern 
should no longer be how much money it makes, but rather how much social good it does. In other words, get woke or get shamed. That was Andy Puzder explaining what environmental, social, and governance models are uh, intended to do. You've been talking about how Anheuser-Busch has lost in a very short amount of time $6 billion, and yet so far, they're, and they and other companies are leaning into and, and pushing forward this, uh, this uh, ESG-involved promotion. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of, that shows the, the will they have to push through this. What, what's motivating this? Yeah, under traditional stakeholder investing, if you make a advertising decision that loses you $6 billion, uh, you pull that advertising campaign and get a new one. Uh, but as you just heard from um, Andy Puzder there, this ESG model, uh, it actually prioritizes environmental and social governance above profits. Uh, and then you dig, and that actually doesn't necessarily sound like the worst thing in the world if you just phrase it that way. But then when you dig into like, well, what do you mean by social governance? Um, and part of their social governance is something they called a, a CEI score. Uh, I can't actually remember exactly what that stands for, but it's uh, it's a score that basically ranks how well a company uh, promotes things like transgenderism. Yes, the corporate equity index. Yeah, corporate equity index. And the corporate equity index, it's assigned by the Human Rights Campaign, um, which is the largest, like, homosexual, transgender, queer, all the, all the acronyms they use, uh, advocacy group uh, in the world. Um, and it's funded um, uh, in large part by the Open Society Foundation, which is run by George Soros, uh, or, or at least uh, uh, founded by George Soros. And so this, uh, this human rights <laughs> uh, group is giving you a score on how well you're promoting transgenderism. Then the ESG models, BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, State Street, they use that corporate equity index to rank how a company should be run. And so if a CEO like the one at Anheuser-Busch uh, doesn't promote like said, transgender influencers, uh, their CEI score goes down uh, and they can be penalized under the ESG um, model, it, lose their bonus or, or even lose other investments for their company uh, that make it to the point where they're actually more concerned about um, getting on the bad side of BlackRock than they are getting on the bad side of the people buying Bud Light at the convenience store. So this is happening right now in America. Where where can we get like a larger context on on viewing what's happening here to corporate America and to individual Americans? Well, I would like to draw our listeners' attention to a, a prophecy in Isaiah five and verse twenty, uh, which says, "Woe to them that call evil good and good evil." And I, I just think that's a really good way to <laughs> express this situation uh, and really the state of morality in America today, because uh, traditionally, like liberals, uh, the word liberal 
uh, comes from the word liberty, and we call them that because more traditionally they have had more of a uh, live and let live, uh, who am I to judge, uh, every man does what's right and in his own eyes approach to morality. <laughs> but increasingly we're actually almost starting to see like a puritanical <laughs> uh, dogma-centered vigor. A new orthodoxy. A new orthodoxy that, that's like a photo negative of biblical morality to where it's not just so much like if you want to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you want to be a transgender, be a transgender. But it's more like thou shalt uh, hire transgender influencers and if you lose six billion dollars because people don't want don't, don't like that uh suck it up because this is what the uh the uh the new elders of the church of liberalism <laughs> have come in and told you to do our american listeners and all our listeners you are going to have to stand on your own two feet on this this is this is happening in your country uh evil does exist there are definitely people calling evil good, and that booklet, Redefining Family, is a good a good one to look at at this time. Uh, we have moved past tolerance. I remember middle school. We, I was talking about that with my wife last night. And middle when I was in middle school age, the worst thing you could do was be intolerant. That that was the the worst sin you could do. We've moved past that. We're past that now. Uh, that's Redefining Family on the trumpet.com slash literature. Thank you, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. We go back to Mihailo Zekic. We go from Bud Light to Uzbekistan. Yes, Uzbekistan is not a country we go to often in this program. For those that aren't aware where it is, it's a former Soviet state in Central Asia. And in the city of Samarkand, uh, or sorry, Samarkand, yesterday there was a conference held with Iran, Russia, China, Pakistan, a couple of other stand countries, and most notably the foreign minister of the Taliban, the new government in Afghanistan. Now, the actual events of the conference itself wasn't too remarkable. Uh, it was mainly called by uh, these various uh, actors to try and come together with the uh, move, moving towards in the right direction of bringing Afghanistan back on its own two feet. Um, they've had these meetings like this before. But uh, the interesting thing, I think, is the fact that these meetings are being held in the first place, and there is some progress being made with these meetings in the sense of just normalizing the Taliban. The Taliban foreign minister, officially no government recognizes the Taliban, but they were there as an equal partner to the Russian foreign minister, to the Chinese uh, foreign minister, to all these other countries. 
and they spoke about different things like uh, setting up potentially in the near future a joint action mechanism to reboot Afghanistan's economy. Um, in a post-meeting statement, they stated that the implementation of the main demands of the world community by the current authorities of Afghanistan, bunch of legalese there, but uh, in other words, getting uh, representation of women in the workforce and education, rights for minorities, that kind of thing. Um, the Taliban, at least at this point, is playing along. Now, to this day, we keep hearing statements from America, from the country that retreated from Afghanistan almost two years ago, saying that the uh, evacuation was orderly, that while there are some lessons to be learned, we wouldn't do anything differently. It was a big success. Look at the fruits. Now that America is gone, not only do we have a terrorist group controlling the country, who's calling the shots right now? It's Iran, it's China, it's Russia, it's all these anti-American regimes that we claim to be against, so we claim to be fighting on other fronts like Ukraine. And yet we've handed to them a country, a regime that helped organize 9-11 on a silver platter. And again, officially no country recognizes Afghanistan. All these countries, Iran, uh, Pakistan, they all have what's called charge d'affaires in their capitals, which are basically diplomatic missions by the Taliban under the amb ambassadorial level. In other words, an ambassador without calling him an ambassador. They recognize the Taliban. The Taliban is firmly within their ranks. So we a uh, scripture we turn to, uh, which uh, Jeremiah mentioned in the first segment, Leviticus 26, 19, talks about America having power but lacking the pride in it. Uh, obviously, that what happened two years ago with the Afghanistan debacle was humiliating. But two years on, it just gets better and better and better with how much this is playing against America's favor. And... If for our listeners, if they'd be interested in reading more literature about this, back when the Afghanistan withdrawal was happening, we published a special issue of The Trumpet about Afghanistan. We had two articles in there. One was called With Enemies Like These Who Needs Friends, and the other is Why Russia and China Are Rejoicing. And they talk about what Iran was thinking about the Taliban, what Russia and China were thinking about it. Two years on, we're seeing these exact players, as the articles bring out, getting benefits from the new regime in the in afghanistan and making inroads in them so ahead of our time as uh, the trumpet always is if our listeners would like to read more about that i'd recommend those two articles spokesmen and spokeswomen for the government regime i do not say administration of joe biden uh, have been asked about afghanistan all week it seems and they are still saying it basically could not have gone better Richard Palmer, after Emmanuel Macron working to openly, explicitly pivot a would-be European superpower over to the rising Chinese superpower that you mentioned, what is the next biggest story in Europe right now? Well, the second item I'd like to talk about is that Italy declared a six-month state of emergency this week. Uh, migration into Italy, immigrants arriving has quadrupled at the start of 2023 compared to the same time period last year. So you've had 31,000 migrants arriving so far this year compared to about 8,000 over the same period last year. And uh, so this is what has led to this, this state of emergency. And I think anybody who's seen anything of European politics over the last eight years 
knows that the ramifications of this kind of thing could be huge, that we're starting to see uh, an uptick in migrants into Europe. You know, the 2015, 2016, we are still seeing the results of the 2015 migrant crisis. Like, that is still changing elections. Every time I'm on the show talking about elections, we see the impact of this. We saw it with the Finnish elections that we were talking about last week. You know, it has fundamentally changed what parties are in Europe. I don't think Italy's current leader would be in position were it not for the 2015 migrant crisis. And the fact that you've got the successor party to Benito Mussolini's party would not be here, I don't think, were it not for that migrant crisis. So to see things trending up again is remarkable. It's the summer that you really have to watch that things do really um, ex- tend to explode. Now, it's still not as high as 2015. I think that's important to make clear. But we're also going from a, a higher level. You know, Europe is already kind of stressed in terms of some of its practical ability to absorb migrants, both from the 2015 crisis. Then you've got the U- Ukraine immigrants, which that does not carry the same cultural tension as migrants from the Middle East, but they take up beds, resources, space. So it still str- increases the stress on the system. Uh, and so all of this means that you could see more political changes, both in terms of Europe shifting to the right, and then what I think has been one of the most remarkable aspects of Giorgia Maloney's uh, leadership of Italy is just the way that she has pushed Italy getting into much more involved into North Africa and across the Mediterranean. And so now, you know, why why is this increasing? Well, it's due to exactly what Mihailo just talked about in part. Afghanistan falling apart. It's due to uh, a whole host of different factors that are going on across the Middle East. And one strand of how Europe is addressing this is getting more evolved across the Middle East so they can deal with those factors. And people are already talking about even kind of Maloney resurrecting um, this Italian Mediterranean empire. That was the cornerstone of Mussolini's foreign policy. Uh, and so it's this is what we've been expecting from Bible prophecy for Europe to uh, resurrect the Roman Empire. This is another pressure on Europe to do that. Uh, It's a fulfillment of that prophecy in Revelation 17 that you would have an empire that repeatedly rises and falls. And it's something that we talk about in more detail in our article, Were We Wrong About Georgia Maloney? When you're watching the news and you expect a certain and definite end result, sometimes the major stories you're looking for are these that that, uh, simmer a little bit under the surface. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Let's move back over to the Asia region. And again, the leaks from the Pentagon. Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this uh, collection of leaked Pentagon documents this week, it covered just a whole range of, you know, very sensitive information about various regions around the world where the U.S. is involved or has interests. And one of the big ones that it calls quite a lot of attention to is Latin America. And the overall assessment is that Russia and China are rapidly gaining influence in this region, Latin America and the Caribbean, while the U.S.'s influence is drying up. One of the uh, specific revelations was about Russia's Wagner Group. These are mercenaries that are kind of an unofficial arm of Russian power, and the leaks showed that they are now in bed with Haiti's security forces. So Russia has essentially maneuvered into the upper rungs of Haitian governance. And then another document exposed how Russia has been building closer ties with the Brazilian government, 
and also Nicaragua, which is already Russia's main security partner in the region. And then there was also a document showing that China has plans to build a deep water port off the coast of Nicaragua. For this, there's apparently already a site selected and surveys underway, so this port could be a reality quite soon. And this all comes, of course, as Brazil's president is in Beijing right now meeting with Xi Jinping, just trying to figure out ways to boost Brazil-China ties and to reduce the global power of the U.S. dollar. So this all just represents new evidence for something that has really been underway for over a decade now, and that is Russia and China, some of, you know, some of the U.S.'s most dangerous and determined adversaries, that are establishing robust influence in the Americas in some places that are of vital importance to U.S. security. And again, it's uh, a lot to keep an eye on, but easier to do if you know what to look for and where it's going. That's true. Yes, there are some prophecies in uh, Isaiah 23, also Ezekiel 27, that talk about a mart of nations or an economic block that will form between Russia and China and some European nations. I, I think these were mentioned in the first half of the program. And when you pit those passages alongside Deuteronomy 28, 52, it's clear that one of the main goals of this economic block will be to besiege the United States and kind of lock it out of global trade. And uh, we have an article that we can link to in our show notes. It's called Storming America's Castle. This article puts these different passages together, and it shows just how serious the threat that America is facing is. Uh, this article really focuses especially on the Caribbean nations, and it shows how um, the deepening influence by Russia and China in those nations will help this assault, this future assault on the U.S. to happen largely from there. I'll just read one small part of that article. It says, the Caribbean Sea is vital to U.S. security. This sea not only connects the East Coast with the Pacific via the Panama Canal, it guards the mouth of the Gulf of Mexico. Half of America's seaborne trade passes through the Gulf. So a foreign power that controls the Caribbean could cripple the U.S. economy by restricting its access to oceanic shipping. End quote. So, you know, when we see Russia and China pulling out all the stops to deepen their influence in Latin American nations... I think that we should uh, understand that that is creating the conditions for that prophesied siege to take place. Pentagon leaks expose Russia and China's involvement in Latin America on the trumpet.com, as well as preparing to storm America's castle. Thank you, Jeremiah Jacques. Speaking a bit there of trade and goods and finance and money and the United States, our last report to you this week returns us to America and to the banking system. Uh, the business model of many regional banks uh, is broken. They have a narrow deposit base. They have a large amount of uninsured deposits. They have massive losses on their securities. Even the value of their loans is falling. Uh, they have exposure to commercial real estate. And many of them, if you measure it correctly, given the changes in interest rates, are now insolvent. If they have to raise money, not at 50 basis points on their deposits, because people can get 4 or 5% on safe money market T-bills, then you have a problem in terms of cost of funding and value of their assets. So I think that the worst in terms of severe banking stresses is still ahead of us. And of course, this credit crunch is going to reduce significantly economic growth. They lend to SMEs, they lend to households, they lend to commercial and residential real estate. That credit crunch is going to tip the U.S. economy into a recession later this year. 
That was Noriel Robini, an economics professor, giving some analysis for Yahoo News. Uh, And you heard him right that he is predicting a recession in the United States later this year. Uh, Some analysts actually think we had a recession in the United States last year. Uh, There were two quarters in a row where the economic growth was negative. Uh, There was some quibbling about how... um, low unemployment made it not did not count uh but from the clip you just heard they're um you're they're definitely predicting a um a a dyed in the wool uh everything that comes with it recession this year as just people are worried uh about spending the money investing stimulating the economy due to the banking crisis uh could even get us into a kind of a nightmare situation they call like stagflation where the inflation's high uh and the unemployment's high as well uh normally you kind of do a trade-off there but it gets kind of getting a position where the average american uh it's harder to find work uh harder to pay bills uh as you just have this overall economic malaise that sets in which really brings into uh mind a prophecy i wanted to highlight Uh, In Haggai 1 and verse 6, this is about the economy and the end-time nations of Israel, where there's a a particularly poetic phrase that says, he that earns wages, earns wages to put them in a bag with holes, Um, which is, that's basically the the ancient Israelite way of explaining uh, inflation, where you... uh, it's uh you can talk about now about you know like diluting the money supply in a lot of technical terms but like in the poetic spies it's like you have a bag and you put your wages in it and then you go to the market to buy some matzahs and uh you reach in and uh <laughs> the money's gone it's like it's like the bag has holes in it and that's really what um America's going to be facing today. Um, it, like I said, the economy, it goes up and down, but that, that overall bag with holes analogy uh, on a long-term trend will get worse and worse and worse uh, until the dollar just completely collapses, no longer the world's reserve currency uh, or even worth much of anything at all. And you can look at thetrumpet.com for when will the dollar collapse? When will the dollar collapse indeed And what is it that we will be covering here on Trumpet Hour with you next weekend? Will it be the dollar's collapse? We'll see. But for this week, that is your Trumpet Hour. We thank you, Mr. Miller. We thank you for the panel, uh, all of your contributions. We invite you to email us your thoughts on the program, letters at thetrumpet.com. And we thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for all their work on engineering and production. And we thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour.